following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Today's reading is from Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. That's Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Wherever you are, welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. My name's Peter Johnson, and I'm part of the congregation here at St Nicholas Durham. It's so, so good to have this time together to look at God's word, even though we may be physically distant uh, from each other. I should say that this is my first online sermon, so do please bear with me if I get out of focus or lose eye contact. At least I have the statutory flowers, though you have to look quite hard for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in all our need and longing, and ask that through your Holy Spirit, your word might become alive to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we come to this story of the feeding of the 5,000, the most well-known miracle of all, the only one recorded in each of the four Gospels. Now, over the years, I've found C.S. Lewis a helpful starting point for looking at the miracle accounts in the Bible. He talks of them as the incarnate God doing suddenly and locally something that God has done or will do in general. In other words, miracles tell a much bigger story. Each miracle, says Lewis, writes for us in small letters something that God has already written or will write in letters almost too large to be noticed across the whole canvas of nature. So the feeding of the 5,000, converting a little bread and a little fish into much bread and much fish 
is what our Creator God is doing all the time. Every year, a little corn is made into much corn. The seed is sown and there's an increase. Think of the fish. Again, in Christ's hands, God does close and small what he has always been doing in the seas, the lakes and the rivers. Now, I know that multiplying dead fish isn't quite the same as multiplying live fish, but the general point, I think, is a good one. This miracle points to a bountiful creator God. The feeding of the 5,000 is a story, too, of compassion, of overwhelming provision for those in need, of thanksgiving to God, of using what is available for the blessing of others, of what can happen when Christ is in charge. Through this story, this wonderful story, <clears throat> we get another glimpse of what the kingdom of God is going to be like when it comes in all its fullness. Now you might say, this miracle is all very well, but why doesn't God act like that today? What about having a few similar mir miracles, please, where there's famine or poverty or a pandemic? Like many of you, I guess, I have long puzzled over these sorts of questions. They raise issues about the nature of faith, about our humanity and about the mystery of God. Big topics for another day. But for now, it's worth pointing out that the same questions over why God doesn't intervene when we think it would make more sense for him to do so is found in our chapter in Matthew. Just a few verses before, we're told about John the Baptist, a faithful, courageous, upright man, someone completely committed to his calling by God, beheaded without trial, an execution totally undeserved, done as a sort of party game. Yet no rescue here, no miracle, no intervention. <clears throat> so we may not be able to work out the logic of God's special intervention in human affairs or in nature, or to channel that intervention to areas where we think it would be most effective. But what this passage does do, I think, is to give us another hint, another reminder, that this messy, needy world is actually God's world, a renewed world where blessing is the hallmark. For me, the passage is also a reminder that as disciples of Christ, we have a part to play in meeting need and suffering. It is perhaps sometimes easier to ask God to do something special than simply to respond to the many opportunities there already are for us to act in his name, to be his agents of blessing and healing and provision. So with that background, let's look at the detail of the story. Jesus would have been grieving over the horrible death of John the Baptist. Imagine the sadness, the awfulness of how you would have felt if a dear friend had met the same fate.
that dreadful feeling in the pit of your stomach. And perhaps Jesus couldn't also help uh, pondering the fate that would soon be his. It's no wonder that he tries to draw aside for a bit, to find somewhere quiet, to be alone. Yet it's in just that situation when I know all my energies would have been devoted to coping with my own emotions, that Jesus sees the crowd that's following him. He had every reason for saying, give me a break, but he didn't. Instead, his thoughts turned to the people and their needs. <clears throat> Verse 14 tells me why. It was because Jesus had compassion on the crowds. And so he heals their sick and then he provides for their hunger. Compassion is not some external thing. It's, not, it's about an inner yearning, a gut sympathy for the plight of others. Shared suffering. It sounds a passive thing, but it has compelling power. It was what led the Good Samaritan, at great risk and cost to himself, to cross the road to care for a badly injured man lying in the gutter. It was compassion that motivated the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15. This is what the record says. While the son was a great way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father did all the things that the son didn't deserve because of his compassion. It's surely that kind of compassion that is near to the heart of all true ministry. Some of you may have tuned in to the online confirmation of the new Archbishop of York last month. It had loads of stuffy legal jargon and formal procedure. There was a lot of right, trusty and well-beloveds in it. But in the middle of it all, it was so good to hear Justin Welby encourage the new Archbishop with those simple yet profound words from Colossians. Clothe yourselves with compassion, Christ's compassion. So let's keep praying that God, through his spirit and his word, will help us to have more of his compassion for others. Let's remember how the psalmist described the God we serve. One who is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and of great kindness. It would be good, wouldn't it, if we had the same clothes as our new Archbishop. Clothe yourselves with compassion, a sort of northern province uniform. In a way, it all boils down to a simple question. How far am I others orientated and how far am I me orientated? I mention this because there's an interesting contrast between the give me of Herodias in verse eight, give me the head of John the Baptist, and Jesus's words to the disciples, you give them. So how did Jesus go about meeting the need? 
This is where the disciples come in. They've already thought through the situation. Fact one, this is a remote place. Fact two, it's getting late. Fact three, there's food in the village shops. Solution, send them away so that they can go into the village and get something to eat. Problem solved. A great business school case study. An article in the Harvard Business Review, perhaps. Yet Jesus is having none of this cool logic. The crowds do not need to go away, he says. This is the complete opposite of what was being proposed by the disciples. And even more scary, Jesus seems to give the disciples a key role in meeting the needs of the crowds. You give them something to eat, he says. This is a ministry for you. The disciples can hardly believe what they're hearing. They tell Jesus that they only have five loaves and two fishes to meet this massive crowd, to feed this massive crowd. But it's precisely these resources that Jesus is going to use to meet the needs of the crowd. He doesn't rubbish what is available, far from it. He's going to use exactly what there is to bring blessing. The disciples might discount what's available, but Jesus doesn't. And did you see the first thing that Jesus did with the loaves and fishes? In the tradition of a good Jew, he looks up to heaven. There's huge symbolism here. Father God, this lad's lunch is in your hands. Then he gives thanks for it. He blesses it. I like that. The fish and the bread doesn't seem very much to us. Yet Jesus thanks his father for it. It's enough for him. We find a sort of Old Testament parallel to this miracle in 2 Kings chapter 4. It's a story of a widow who has run up big debts. As compensation, the creditor is going to take her two sons away to be his slaves. The widow appeals to Elisha for help. He asks her, how can I help you? What's in the house? The woman replies, <clears throat> your servant has nothing here at all, except a little oil. In her mind, this oil is hardly worth mentioning. But it's just that last drop of oil that Elisha uses to generate the funds to pay off the debts, to save the day to bring blessing, using what is available. Five loaves, two fishes, yet over 5,000 people. I'd like, if I may, to finish by drawing out a couple of points about our service as Christians that I think come out of our story in Matthew 14. The first is about giving thanks. That's what Jesus did over what seemed like hopelessly insignificant resources. Let's always make thankfulness a mark of our Christian lives. In Ephesians, Paul talks about always giving thanks. Elsewhere, he speaks of overflowing with thanksgiving, having a spirit of thanksgiving. Life is sometimes really challenging and tough as I know many of you have found it in recent months. But let's take every opportunity we can 
to be thankful. As the old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. The second point is about offering to God what we have. Some years ago, a jumbo jet was flying at 30,000 feet from Hong Kong to London. A passenger boarded the plane with a collapsed lung caused by an earlier accident. When she boarded, she didn't know that that was the case and her severe problems only became apparent in the air. Now the good news was that there was a medic on board. The bad news was that he had no equipment with him. Yet he was able to save the passenger's life, wait for it, by using a coat hanger that he'd sterilised in brandy to relieve the pressure on the chest. He used what he had, what was available. Now we may think that we have very little to offer God, but God wants to use what we do have to bring blessing to others. And he wants us to, he wants to use us. The blessing of the crowd is done through the disciples it is they that distribute the bread. It's they that pick up the leftovers. <clears throat> now, our own particular bread and fishes offering may cover a whole range of things way beyond the standard things we do in church. It might be time. It might be a listening ear. It might be encouragement. The offering of hospitality, baking running wine tasting or quizzes for churches in lockdown, a love of birds or football. It may be a musical gift or technical knowledge. It may be a special commitment to praying. It may be the ability when you're in your hundredth year to walk around your garden a hundred times using a walking frame to raise money for the NHS. The list is endless. The challenge is, to, is consciously to offer to God what we have, not to disparage what we have or to long for things that we don't have. And when we've done that, to ask him to use everything for his glory. I love the story of Peggy Smith and her sister Christine, both well into their 80s. They lived in a small, isolated cottage on the Isle of Lewis in the 1940s. Peggy was completely blind. Christine was bent over with arthritis. Neither of them were able to get to church. It looked as if there was very little that they could offer. Yet both committed to praying together three nights a week for revival on their island something they could do. The Hebridean revival that followed saw hundreds come to faith in Christ. So as we start a new week, let's seek to be people marked by Christ's compassion and by thankfulness. And let's offer all that we are and have to God remembering that the God who wants to use us is a God of abundance and blessing. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.